I'm Pastor Scott, lead pastor of the river. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. Romans 4, chapter, or Romans chapter 4, verse 1. You guys have been sitting down for a bit, so I'm going to ask you to stand in uh, reverence for God's word, and let's stand together, and we will read from Romans chapter 4. As we do so, let's pray for his blessing in our time. We praise you, O God, for your word. Move through it in our hearts that we might be changed, transformed, and moved for your glory, that we might hear the truth that you spoke to Abraham, that you spoke to Paul, that you spoke to David, that we might receive that truth. And Lord, that truth doesn't just stay static, but becomes dynamic and moves us, Lord, to a place where you call us to go. You're the one who does this work through Jesus, and it's you alone that we pray to. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter, if in fact... Abraham was justified by works. He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. And there is no law, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. Let's talk just for a minute about how banks work. What is the purpose of a bank? What what does a bank exist for? To make money. Absolutely. Uh, A bank's purpose is not for you to put your savings in. That's not what they really are excited about. They don't get excited about having to give you interest if you put money in your savings account. That actually is a means to an end for any given bank because a bank really does want to make money. And what they will do is simply take the money that you deposit as well as those of investors or other things that they, other places where they can gain what they call capital. And then they will take that money and they will do something important with it that becomes a means for them to make more money. And that is that they give credit. They give things like mortgages, mortgages alone, or credit to somebody to buy a house. They will give an auto loan, right? Some of you have auto loans through banks. Some of you have business loans or lines of credit. Many of you, if not almost all of us, have some sort of credit card in our wallet. That is also a means for the bank to credit you money. And then at the end, let's say, for example, you take a $150,000 mortgage to buy a house. You get $150,000 mortgage from the bank, and they, you can use that money to purchase a home. So many of you have mortgages, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it, what happens then is that you have to pay that money back, right? And at the end, you only pay back $150,000, right? Oh, of course not, right? By the end of it, it's probable that you'll pay back somewhere almost even close to $300,000, for that $150,000 that you used to purchase your home because that's what the bank's purpose is, is to make money off the interest that they charge you. And many of us know that. But here's a question. When a bank gives you credit and you have that money, whose money is it? It's the bank's. It's not yours. It's actually the bank's until you pay it back. It's so much so that you even know if you get an auto loan through a bank, right? Who keeps the title until that auto loan's paid off? The bank does, right? Because it's their money that they've given you, and they've credited it to you in order for you to use to buy a house, buy a car, buy a finance your business, whatever it is that you are going to do. But I want you to keep that principle in mind. When a bank gives you credit, that what has been given is not the receivers, but is the givers. 
the bank still owns and has possession of that money. They can take it back at any time. And as we see in our text, there's an important word and concept that is spoken into by this idea and is helpful for us to understand as we work through this whole thing that Paul does with Abraham. So let's jump in, verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by his works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Right from the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is going to spend, he's going to spend this whole chapter with Abraham. And why, why would he choose Abraham? Because Abraham actually has this really important spot in the life of Israel, in the people of Israel. Not just because he is the father of the Jews, I mean, that has something to do with it, but um, he, he's sort of the beginning of everything, right? I mean, God... We have, uh, the, we've got some significant figures before that. Uh, Abraham shows up, I, I want to say Genesis 12. In the first 12 chapters of Genesis, we get, um, we get uh, Adam and Eve, and we get Cain and Abel, and we get Moses, and we get the Tower of Babel. But really, in terms of characters, that's it. We don't get a lot more than that. Then all of a sudden, Abraham shows up, and everything changes. He's so important, actually, to the Jews that you will hear Jewish people called sons and daughters of Abraham. He is really the beginning of everything for them. And there's a reason for that. And that is that Abraham shows up in the life of, uh, God shows up in Abraham's life before the law. Where's the law show up? Where's the law show up in the text? Mount Sinai. And who does it show up to? Moses and the people of Israel. So that's later on. That's going to, when we get up into the book of Exodus, that's where we're going to start to see Moses and we're going to see all that other stuff that goes on. Until then, we technically don't have law going on. We'll see where law shows itself in Abraham's life, but it's not the same sort of law. It's not the Ten Commandments, tablets. It's not the, the thou shalt and thou shalt, shalt nots of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that we're going to read for God's people that they're supposed to live within. So Abraham shows up before the law. And in fact, it's it's really important that we understand that God's first interaction with Abraham is an interaction not of law, but of faith. All right? We see that here. We see the word faith show up in Abraham's life. In fact, so much so that he becomes the hallmark of Hebrews 11 later on, the great chapter of faith. Now, when we ask the question, or when we think about it, Abraham had faith. And I thought about that this week, and I thought about it, and I'm not, I'm not a fan of saying this, but I have to say something really, really important. I had a disagreement with somebody, and I was wrong. And that's hard for me to say. But it's even harder for me to say when I have to say this. It was Nick Intout, and I was wrong. Because Nick and I had a debate about chapter 3, verse 22. Let's turn there real fast. We had, it wasn't a major disagreement. We didn't like come to blows. I got him in a headlock and it was over. But it, 
we work through some stuff. This righteousness from God comes through faith. And what does it say in your NIV text? In Jesus Christ, right? I don't like that translation anymore. And that's my, where I have to say I was wrong. Because I think it actually is supposed to read the faith of Jesus Christ. So think about this just really quick, and I know it's splitting hairs, but it's important, and you'll see why as we talk through the rest of chapter four. Faith in Jesus Christ, where does that faith come from? That comes from me, right? If I have faith in Jesus Christ, the faith begins with me. But if I think about the faith of Jesus Christ, where does that faith come from? It comes from Jesus right? And if you listened really well last week, you remember Nick tried to make that clear because he really wanted us to see that this is God's work on display. And he and I had a debate and a disagreement about it, and it it wasn't a big deal. Like I said, I I got him into a figure four leg lock, and then it was over. We were good. But before that, we were just working it through, trying to figure it out, and I realize now because of chapter four, I didn't have it right. Because when I talk about Abraham's faith, and I talk about the word credit. Remember what we said about the word credit. Whose is the credit? The givers or the receivers? It's the givers. So if Abraham had faith, whose was it? Was it his or the givers? It's the givers. Abraham had faith not because he had faith in God, or that we can have faith in Jesus Christ, That is a credit, something given by the giver to us, the receiver, and it is still the givers to give and to hold possession of. Abraham's faith was God's faith given to him. My faith is God's faith given to me. Your faith is God's faith given to you. So for us to understand that, especially when we begin to think about this word credit, helps us grab more deeply onto what God is talking about here in the text. And what's really interesting is that this word credit, it shows up 11 times, chapter 4. Nowhere else in the text does it show up nearly as much. It's a big idea here. It's even bigger in terms of how we understand things than the word faith. shows up 11 times. And remember, credit is the givers, not the receivers. Now let's jump into verse 4. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David does the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin, the Lord, will never count against him. Now here Paul is doing another midrash. That midrash is an interpretation of scripture. Paul is going back to another text. He's looking at it and trying to use it or or clarify it so we understand it more deeply. He's going back to a psalm of David. And in this psalm of David, he's strengthening his point by hitting this whole idea that there's nothing that's, that we can do. There's nothing that anyone can do to earn God's grace. In fact, he really assaults the work ethic that many of us have or have had at some point in our lives. I know it's certainly been a part of the tradition of this church. Read with me 
chapter, I think it's verse 5 again. What does verse 5 say again? It says this, however, to the man who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Read that verse really slowly in your mind. It's not an easy one. Because what Paul is saying is that someone who does not work for their faith, work in the kingdom, work to gain God's favor, but instead simply lives in the faith given them, it's credited to them as righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's a challenging idea because it means that somebody in my life, your life, any of our lives, who is not walking with God and doing even sinful things or disobedient things, if God chooses to credit to them as righteousness their faith, what does that mean? God can do that. He doesn't need somebody to, verse 4, work in order to gain their wage as an obligation. He does it according to his will. Even think about the fact that God chose Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? You ever wonder that? I wonder stuff like that. He could have chosen anybody. Maybe he knew Abraham's character, but we're not sure. The text doesn't tell us. It does, tells us only a little bit about his family history and his family line. But at that point, everyone was on equal footing with Abraham. They were all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. It was all part of that lineage. He could have chosen anybody, but he chose Abraham. Why? Because God chooses whom God chooses. And God does what God does. And God, for his glory, does things his way, not according to things that make sense to us. doesn't make sense to us that somebody who might even understand God justifies the wicked, I'm going to live in faith that God justifies the wicked, and I'm going to be okay in before his eyes because he's going to credit that faith to me as righteousness. To me, that's frustrating because there's moments that I want to say, all right, then now clean up your act. All right now, live obediently. Come on now, you need to walk the way that we Christians walk. And then I'll believe it. Then I'll say, yeah, you have faith. But that's not God's equation. It's not how he works. Praise God for that, by the way. Because I need that, because I can't keep it together. I can't do it right. I need that grace in my life, so why can't I trust? Why can't I believe? Why can't I know that he's doing that same thing in the lives of others? My wife is in children's ministry today, so I better keep going, otherwise it's going to be a long afternoon. He assaults our work ethic, and see, the thing is, is this shows up even in how we understand Works righteousness. We, we know works righteousness, don't we? Like, it's, it's, it's what many traditions believe. Oftentimes we'll say the Mormons believe it. The more you, harder you work, then you're doing right by God and God's gonna love you more. You know, the, the better you do if you're a person who cares for the poor and takes care of injustice and does all these different things, then God's gonna love you, for, love you more, right? That's works righteousness, And we don't buy into works righteousness here. We buy into grace and grace alone. Amen? We buy into that. But 
don't we also say, you need more faith? Don't we also say, if we believe, if we but believe in the grace of Jesus Christ, then we're saved. Don't we say that? If we but believe in the grace of Jesus Christ, then we're saved. Isn't that phrase works righteousness? It's just a different type of work. It's still putting the impetus on us. If I but believe in the grace of Jesus Christ, then I'm saved. That's still in that works righteousness thing. And so for us to go back and say, it's the faith not in Christ, 322, but the faith of Christ takes it out of my hands completely, which is moving away from works righteousness, totally understanding and embracing God's grace, not through any sort of work that I do. That's why I think this reading is important. That's why I think understanding this is important because it puts the impetus and the energy of grace and faith and righteousness always in God's hands and not in mine because I'm not capable of handling it. We even see that in this Midrash from Psalm 32 of David. Read with me verse 7. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Those are both passive verbs. means that those things are things that God does. It's his credit line giving to his people, not us ourselves. Then we get verses 9 through 12. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. He is also the father of the circumcised who, are not only, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Got to say circumcised a lot here, and I'm uncomfortable with that. That's okay. Verse 12. Here Paul is showing how Abraham first interacted with God through a trusting, loving relationship. Faith was the hallmark right from the beginning. That's how it started. And that's important because God starts his relationship with his people through love and trust. Now, certainly law shows up. We see that because Abraham had to, what? Be circumcised. That was part of the sign and seal of God's people, which is law. This was a mark that they carried. They still carry to this day. It is obedience to a command of God. Be circumcised. That's law. But that was not first. What was first was God saying to Abraham, Abraham, go to the land which I will show to you. And Abraham does. And Abraham trusts God. And Abraham has faith in God. But whose faith? It's credited. It's faith that God himself had given him. That was God's first interaction with Abraham and with his people. And then, only then, did God give law to Abraham to give humanity a love language 
to speak back. Remember, it starts with loving, trusting relationship, and then law shows up. And law isn't something that God is saying to Abraham, here's what you need to do so you and I can get along now. What he's saying is, my first interaction with you was one of love and trust, faith that I gave to you. And now I give you law. Now I give you circumcision. Eventually I'm going to give you Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And I'm going to give you the law and the prophets and all these things that I will command for you. And these are ways, instead of you thinking about how they impact you getting along with me, they're simply ways in which you can say to me, I love you. I love you and want to be in relationship with you. Think about this for kids. Caitlin and David Carnes just had a baby, what? Five months ago. Cute little baby, perfect little baby. That baby shows up on whatever day. She, it's she, right? I don't want to get this wrong. I baptized the baby. I better know this. She shows up in the hospital room. And the nurse or the doctor hands you, Caitlin, the baby. You have the baby uh, swaddled right here. And you look down at that baby and you said to her right away, okay, now you need to know you don't poop on me. That was your first interaction with your baby, right? Yeah, absolutely it was. Now you need to know that when you're walking around the house, don't pull the tail of the dog, right? I mean, that's what we say to our kids right away in the hospital room, right? Of course not. You said probably within the first two or three minutes, if not the first words. I remember for one of my children for sure that I can remember because that's all over, it was my first words to that child. It was, I love you. I love you because you're amazing just the way you are and your gift and I love you. That's how we interact with our children at the beginning in the same way how God interacts with us. Now, let's say uh, let's say that baby were to now, for whatever reason, she's not at that place yet, but take, which is the worst baby food, by the way, cream spinach. I don't even know why we give that to our children. It's a horrible idea. Cream spinach in a bowl, and you put that bowl in front of her when that day comes, which is not there yet, and she takes that bowl and she sh- puts it on top of her head and covers her whole head with cream cream spinach. You're going to look at her and you're going to probably laugh, right? Because it's cute. It's nice. But what about if, like with my kids, I have a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old at home. My 10-year-old were to do that with his cream spinach, which I wouldn't give him anyway, but he did that with his cream spinach. You think I would laugh? Absolutely not. Why? Because it's rule 17 on my list. We have it posted in our kitchen. Don't take a bowl of cream spinach and pour it over the top of your head. That's a rule in our house. And the way that my children say, I love you back to me, is by doing what I ask them to do. That's how it works. But that's not the primary interaction. That's not how things begin. The way that things begin is my children showed up and I said, I love you. Why? Because they're beautiful and they're mine and they're a gift from God and they're gorgeous. They are my gift that I have received. In the same way as God interacts with us as people, he begins with love and the rules and the law and all those things become ways for us as his people to say back to him, I love you. In fact, I'll never forget it. 
top of a mesa in Israel with Ray Vanderlaan. You're always at the top of something whenever you go somewhere with Ray Vanderlaan, and it's really tiring to get there. On top of a mesa, it's right near what's a place called Solomon's Towers or Solomon's Porch or Solomon's something. It has nothing to do with Solomon, but they thought it was cool to call it that. We're at the top of this mesa. It's hot. We're all tired. And Ray Vanderlaan is doing this whole thing about the Ten Commandments. And he's doing this whole thing about the Ten Commandments because what he's saying is that as God handed the tablets of the commandments to Moses and Moses brought them down, God was in essence solemnizing the covenant relationship of a husband with his bride and saying, I will love you and I will care for you and I simply call you to live in purity because you're my bride before me and this is how you say, I love you back. And I'll never forget him standing with his Bible at the top of his hands and screaming out so that the whole valley around us could hear, this is God's word to you. I love you. Will you love me? And God's word becomes an opportunity as we live it out and obey it for us to say back to him. We love you too. It's not about getting things right. It's not not about making sure that we've got all our ducks in a row. It's about saying back to God, I love you. Verses 13 through 17. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be, excuse me, by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Paul here, he's clarifying the importance of Abraham. He's making sure we understand. He is the father of all because the first interaction between him and God, remember, was that love, trust, loving, trusting relationship. Loving, trusting, that's the Gentile side of things. That's the Gentiles in Rome. That's the we who are Gentiles. But then we also get circumcision. Circumcision, a sign of the law. God is the, or Abraham is the father of the Jews as well who have received and will receive the law in the days to come. Only then, after this loving, trusting relationship had begun, did God give law to Abraham to give humanity and love language to speak back. So he's the father of both. That's what Paul's trying to make clear here. And then we get verses verses 18 through 25. Sorry I'm moving, but there's just so much here, and I don't want to keep you until 4 o'clock this afternoon. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened. What does that say? Hold on. What did it say? It said, he was strengthened in what? His 
So whose faith was it? It was God's. God strengthened him. God is the one who gave it to him. He was strengthened, that's a passive verb, in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The word it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So after all this stuff about how God begins this relationship with Abraham and he becomes the father of all, Abraham now has to figure out how to live. And so what does he do? He lives in hope. Hope given him through the faith of God. And his hope just revolves around, God, you've met me. I don't know why you met me. I don't know why you chose me. I don't know why you picked me, but you did. And you made this relationship with me, first of all, through a loving, trusting relationship, through covenant and through the law. And now you say to me, now go and live. And so all these things have happened. So I'm going to, I'm just going to live it out. I'm going to hope against hope that even though I'm old and my wife is old, that you're going to give us a kid, and God does it, Isaac. And I'm going to hope against hope that you're going to be faithful to your promise and make me the father of many nations. And hope against hope, God does it, and he's the father of Israel, and he impacts all these other countries around them. And they still do that to this day. God is faithful to that promise even to this day. And God is also faithful that Abraham would bless others to be a blessing, be the father of all, that he will bless other nations through Abraham. One of the covenants, Abraham still fulfills, or that still, that promise is still fulfilled in us. We receive that blessing. He's living out the love language. He's living out faithfulness to God, faith given him by God, and now he can say it back by believing it, trusting in it, and doing it. And then we get verses 23 and 25 through 25, and they say, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is talking about the atonement. Atonement is a key thing and there's a lot going on. But here's the fundamental of it. We believe that God credits righteousness to us. Amen? He gives, he, so whose is that? Is that the givers or the receivers? The credit. It's the givers. It's God's. It means that there's a debt relationship, Right? And the debt comes because of sin. So something has to even that out. There has to be payment for sin. Jesus. Credit paid. Credit paid. Not future. Credit paid now. There's a lot more going on in the atonement than that. But that's one of the fundamentals. Is that Christ pays the credit bill with God the Father so that now we live no longer in debt to our sin. We no longer have the burden of that. We no longer are consumed by that debt that takes us from life into death. Now it's paid, so we're back from death into life. 
Okay, so what? We live under credit with God. We do. We can't get away from that. God credits righteousness to us, but it's not a burden in the same way credit card debt, a mortgage debt, an auto loan debt is. Instead, this is a credit that brings life. This is a credit that brings righteousness, that brings hope, that brings purpose. So it's a credit that, that, that frees us to live into who God has made us to be. So who we've made, been made to be is the bride of Christ. So we live into that love language of obedience. We live into that love language that, that, that says to God back, we love you. We're grateful for what you've done for us in Christ. And we're going to live that out in how we say thank you to you in obedience to what you've called us to do. And since Christ is the one who pays off our credit, we can proclaim his life, his hope, and his joy. Is there anyone in the room who has ever paid off a mortgage in full? Another, another Juritzma family member. You Juritzmas paying off your mortgages. Good stuff. It was a good day, wasn't it? How long ago was it? It was April, so we're close. Good day, and as you wrote it, you were very disappointed that you were writing that last check, I'm sure. How long did it take you to pay off that mortgage? 86. So, somebody quick do the math. 28 years. 28 years. 28 years you've been paying that same check every week. Or every month, thank goodness. Every month. 20 years, and, and it's enough money. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a lot of money, wasn't it? Sometimes mortgage, mortgage checks are uh, $1,500 a month. Sometimes it can be up to $2,000 a month. Every month, paying $1,500 a month, $1,000 a month, $2,000 a month, even more than that. And finally, after a long time, 28 years, it's paid off. That's a good day. In fact, this morning, it was George and Marvely who were talking about paying off their mortgage, and George looked over at Marvely and said, she was glorious. I don't even know what that means, but it's awesome. She was glorious on that day because it brought so much joy. They didn't have to worry about that debt anymore. They didn't have to worry about paying every month that huge amount of money. Now they could do whatever it is that they were going to do with that money. Every day... Every second, every moment of every day, you and I have our mortgage completely paid off. We live into a credit-free life with our God. When will you let your face and the rest of your life know? Sure, there's burdens. Sure, there's struggles. Sure, there's trouble. Sure, there's difficulties. And yes, we still have a real mortgage that we have to pay off. And those are hard things. But compared to whether or not your house is paid off or not, or whether or not you're dead or not, think about that. You, through the debt paid of Jesus Christ, have life for all eternity, never to be taken away. It is yours to live into the joy and the hope, the purpose, 
the power of God given to you through the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who continues to work in you, to give you faith, to give you gifts, to give you ability, to give you the hope and the joy. He is the one who does it. You can't work harder to get it, but you can, when you receive it, live it out and say to the one who has paid it off for all eternity, I love you and I will always love you. Because without you, I'm lost. But because of you, I'm found. People of the river, let's live I love you. And say I love you to our God. Would you pray with me? We praise you, O God, for your gift, faith, righteousness, hope you have given to us. We can't earn it, we can't claim it, in and of our own ability or strength or power. You are the one alone who provides it. Father, may we now live in to that. Not through our own strength, but as you grow your faith, your encouragement, your spirit's power in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that we can live out, I love you. That we can proclaim, Lord, to others, because we love you so much, that it would be good for them to know you too. Father, may we do that out of freedom and the life you've given to us. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear. Maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them. Feel free. Contact us in the office. Give us a call. Send us an email. Um, We'd love to hear from you. Love to answer any questions that you have. Thanks for checking us out.